This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. My guest this week is author, comedian, and co-host of the Trigonometry podcast, Constantine Kissing. Constantine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Thank you. Now, you've just published your first book, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. Could you just give listeners an overview of what the book's about and some of the themes discussed within it? Well, mostly the book is a reminder to people in the West uh, who were born here, who perhaps haven't traveled that widely, who haven't experienced uh, different societies uh it's a reminder to to all of those people uh, that they're incredibly fortunate to be living in the west in the 21st century and that some of the problems that we constantly obsess about and spend an inordinate amount inordinate amounts of time discussing uh are actually not that big not that serious and by comparison to what people have to deal with around the world and by comparison to what human beings have always had to deal with in every era of human civilization, uh, we're very, 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 very fortunate. And so, you know, that's the main point of it. I talk a lot in the book about how some of the tendencies of modern Western societies uh, remind me of uh, growing up in the Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. whether that is um, the adoption of a very Soviet concept, uh, which is political correctness invented in the Soviet Union to restrict what people could and couldn't say mainly about communism and the party and so on. This has now been adopted quite and critically in the West, it seems to me, where uh, we're constantly restricting what other people are allowed to think, what they're allowed to express in public. And of course, many other things that are are happening, the uh, growing appeal of uh, far left politics to young people uh, and some of the similarities I, I find there. And I also offer what I think is... You know, I offer a lot of reasons why the West is good. I warn about some of the directions uh, in which it's heading. Um, uh, And then I'm just making sure that I try to communicate that in a way that people can hear, uh, which is quite important in the times that we're now in, because social media kind of, um, well, annihilated any incentive for people to actually be polite to each other. Uh, And so you know, any information that is counter to what you already believe will often be received with extra difficulty because it's perceived as being tinged with, you know, insult and disrespect and so on. So I tried to write it in a way that people could read. It sounds really interesting. And I just want to pick up on the the title of the book. You you know, it's an Mm. immigrant's love letter to 
the West. And we have so many different conceptions of what the West is, be it uh, civilization, values, philosophy, but also looking at it through geopolitical lenses and like collections of countries, etc. So just with the title then, what do you specifically consider to be the West? Is, is it that values philosophical style of the West, or do you see it as just that collection of countries within the Western Hemisphere? Well, uh, this is uh, the difficulty of having called the book what I did, because it actually isn't what I meant. I, I was primarily really trying to talk about the Anglosphere. Um, that is what I'm talking about, because, look, the, it's not it's not untrue that all Western countries, what you might consider Western countries, which is essentially the descendant countries of the Western Roman Empire, that's why, for example, New Zealand and Australia are part of the West and countries next to them like mm. Indonesia aren't because the most of the population of Australia and New Zealand are the descendants of people who themselves yeah. were the descendants of the Western Roman Empire. Mm. But um, I think we see, we have seen in in the 20th and 19th century that the French and the Germans have very different concepts of how to do mm these things um and it is actually the americans who end up taking on the cultural inheritance of uh, of the of the british empire so i'm talking about primarily the anglosphere yeah. uh which is a certain way of doing business which is a certain set of laws a certain set of norms about what isn't isn't acceptable how free people should be how far the rights of the individual extend yeah. and so on that's kind of what i'm talking about mm -hmm. but you, you're and right to pick me up on yeah. it is, is my point the, those ideas of the rights of individual freedom uh this sort of enlightenment philosophy that was developed in the, the western world and uh, the uk europe you know, th those values and you explore them in more detail in the book but those values and promoting them they seem to have gone out of fashion somewhat in in recent years and again you do pick up on this in this book but why why do you think it is that people seem to be falling out of love with these ideas that have endured for so many centuries yeah i'm, I'm less persuaded that the ideas themselves are uh, falling out of fashion i think you're right to suggest that promoting them is falling out of fashion. These are two very different things. I think overall, the majority of the public have absolutely no problem with, uh, you know, having a common sense approach to most of these issues. I don't think most of the public are obsessed about the issue of transgenderism in either direction. I don't think the majority of the public are obsessed about creating some kind of divide between men and women or, you know, breaking society up along racial lines. I don't think that's what the majority of the public care about, yeah. particularly at this moment when uh, they've got gas bills to pay. And, you know, the majority of the public of all sexes and colors and, and whatever are pretty sensible people in my in my experience. But as for promoting those values that you're talking about, well, that has fallen very much out of fashion. And that's because the people who largely and when I, I'm, I'm going to use the word control, but I, I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that this is like a cabal of evil people who've got together and, you know, conspired to capture institutions. Mm -hmm. No, they, they, they are just the ones, you know, that fill those institutions by and large. Uh, you know, the BBC, many of the other mainstream media organizations, the civil service, politics, you know, the, the entire class of the elite, so-called. Yeah. Uh, they are people who've been persuaded by this ideology, particularly because they mostly went to universities where they were all taught some of these ideas to the point where, you know, you have the Conservative Party supposedly has just pushed through the online harms bill or the online safety bill. And if you analyze it, as my good friend Andrew Doyle has just done, the linguistic significance of that, 
you literally have the Conservative Party implementing elements of critical theory in yeah. government policy, right? So it's not like the evil woke leftists have done this or the evil right wingers have done this. It's the entirety of that elite class, which has completely abandoned any idea that we should be promoting these values, that they should be considered important, that the freedom of the individual actually is quite important. Even if there is a pandemic, that doesn't mean we start taking away people's rights just because we, you know, we're scared. Like those are some principles. Same with freedom. Yes, we've got a big problem in that we've invented these tools of communication like social media that does allow people to spew hate into your phone unchallenged and uncontrolled. And that's different to what we normally would talk about in the context of free speech, because in the past, nobody could enter your home without your consent significantly, mm -hmm. right? And just start spewing crap towards you. So we have a changing environment, but it, it seems to me that the instincts of our governing class are not to adhere to those values, whereas the instincts of the majority of the people probably are. Yeah, you're absolutely right to point out the, the online secret bill, but you're quite right in pointing out that it's a, an online harms bill. And we, we've spoken about this at length on the show in recent weeks as it closer and closer to becoming legislation. But I, I do want to pick up on your point about social media, because, it, you know, social media has essentially taken debate out of so, so many important topics. And it, we've seen these sort of shouting matches constantly on social media. Twitter's terrible for it. And as a result, we've seen these Western values, as we've been discussing, almost on a, a downward spiral for some time. And you only need to look at debates around colonialism and toppling statues or the ideals of uh, progressivism and identity politics just to, to see this. Mm. So why do you think as a society, as a civilization, we've allowed social media to essentially become responsible for, for, for this trend and allowed it to infiltrate so much of, of our lives and our discourse. Well, it's an interesting word, allow, that you've used there, because I wonder to the extent to which we've allowed it and the extent to which it's occurred without our being present to it occurring mm -hmm. before we realized, oh, actually, this is quite bad. I, mm -hmm. I don't think there were people who were there, you know, 10 years ago who understood exactly what the internet would mean for human communication mm -hmm. and they sort of turned a blind eye to it i think this is just a new technology which is obviously incredible i mean the fact mm -hmm. that you and i are speaking is almost mm -hmm. certainly impossible without the existence of social media yeah. the fact that people are listening to this episode uh you know in at least their dozens right is is not accidental right that is a product of these incredible tools that we now have to connect each other however like all tools they they have particularly like all powerful tools they have very powerful negative side effects as well you know I, i'm sure i'm not the first person to have made this comparison but the invention of the printing press which was exactly the same shift only at a much smaller level uh, the democratization of communication and information, which is what it was, right? It went from the church having complete control over information to quite a large number of individuals having control of information. And now we've taken a massive leap further down that path in that everybody has the ability to communicate information. And that's the shift that's happened. Um, and I don't know that it was ever going to be any different to the invention of the printing press, which, by the way, caused two centuries of religious war in the heart of Europe. So, you know, the, some of the <laughs> the transformations we are going through so far 
I mean, we'll see what happens, but so far actually quite insignificant compared to what they could have been. So, um, look, you know, so the humanity goes through these these waves, I think, of rapid expanded expanses in our in our understanding of how we are and, and how we communicate with each other. We're living through one of them. Yeah, and it poses certain challenges, which which is that in this environment, we're going to have to find another way, a healthier way to communicate. And in the same way that we, you know, obsess about how we have healthy food now and healthy clean air and our cars are green and whatever, mm-hmm. eventually someone is actually going to go, you know what, maybe we should have healthy conversations mm-hmm. and then uh, somebody will develop the technology to find, yeah. facilitate that, I think. Yeah, so it's a, certainly an interesting idea and, you know, sort of charting how, how we have as a civilization evolved into this uh, situation we find ourselves in today. But in, in the book, you you write quite extensively about your experiences growing up within the Soviet Union. You mentioned it in one of your earlier answers. So I'd just like to ask you, what what was life like growing up in, in Russia at that time? Well, if... Uh... First of all, as you say, it was the Soviet Union, not mm. Russia. So it was, yeah, course, I know, yeah. the, no, 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 it's fine. I know that for geographical purposes, those terms are interchangeable, but I'm, I'm making the point that for, for in terms of e- economics, culture, how the, how life was organized, these were completely different societies in many ways. Mm. So that's why I, I, I'm, I'm making the emphasis on that point. Uh, yeah, growing up in the Soviet Union, it was interesting because uh, it was in many ways a very pleasant society to be in even though it was uh very poor um even though it was uh very regimented and controlled and so on but but it was very stable and calm and and, um comfortable for a lot of people um so you know i the one of the things that explains what why um a lot of the more recent events are happening in Russia is a product of of going from a very poor and restricted society, but that was stable and comfortable to a society in which there was plenty of opportunity and you could make lots of money and and blah, 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 but also tremendous amount of poverty and disruption. So the Soviet Union offered you stability. However, it was the price you paid for that was any sort of prosperity, any sort of freedom, um, you know, uh, I write in a book about how in some ways it was a progressive utopia, you know, free education, free healthcare, but very poor healthcare. And education was good in some respects, but, um, you know, you, you, for example, once you went to university, you couldn't then choose where you worked. You were given the job by the state. So you were living a very regimented life. And of course, by the late 80s, the economy started being a problem as well. There was a shortage of all sorts of basic food. So people would queue for hours just to get something. Uh, so it was it was a society on the brink of collapse and one whose entire history, in some ways like Russia has become again now, very, very restrictive in terms of what you could and couldn't say, what you couldn't couldn't criticize, the jokes you could make uh, and so on. And you, you moved to the UK at quite, quite a young age. Were you about 12, 13 at, at the yeah. time? Yeah. So moving from the Soviet Union to the uk how much of a culture shock was that yeah it was huge i mean it was a big adjustment there's Mm. no question about it big adjustment Mm. you've been quite vocal in recent months about your opposition to what's been going on in ukraine and as as many of us are and you know your your position on on the war is is in public domain and people can find it quite easily but just as a russian-born person how do you feel about the the actions of the government of, of your country Shameful, yeah, shame. uh, shameful. Uh, I completely reject all of the claims that are being made about the justification for this war. 
um, even if some of some of them have a basis to them, it doesn't mean you get to invade another country and kill uh, thousands of innocent people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I feel what I think any of us would feel. In some ways, I feel what similar, I mean, slightly different, but similar uh, to what I felt when Britain and America invaded Iraq in 2003, mm-hmm. which is having done everything you as an individual citizen could to prevent this, to speak out against it, you nonetheless have to face that despite millions of people being against something, the government has gone ahead and decided that it it knows better that thousands of people should die um, over not over defending people who are being massacred or anything like that, but over some kind of territorial or material interest. I'd like to move away from the, the book slightly to, to focus on issues around free speech. And mm. there's a, a lot of discussion at the moment around free speech and cancel culture, with many describing what this period we're in at the moment as a culture war. Now, do you think that the term culture war is just hyperbole, or do you think we are now finding ourselves in a situation where the values, as we've been discussing earlier, are actually starting to come under attack? Uh, yeah, I think both of those are, are true. Uh, we those values are coming under attack, and that is the culture war. Uh, right. th- that's how I, I would see it. The culture war is a battle between. Well, I mean, the thing is, there's different groups, and some are less pleasant, and some are more pleasant than others. But at the core of it, the way I see the culture war, uh, forgetting the extremists on both sides who are going at it, is is a it's a discussion and a debate uh, over how far we should push the lever of progressivism. Uh, and, uh, you know, how far do we want to throw away traditions and culture and customs and the things that at this point we may not, we may no longer even remember why they are the way they are, but maybe the fact that they've endured long enough to forget why they're there is a good reason not to throw them away without at least thinking about it first. Like that is to me the cultural conversation that i'm in which is do we in the desire to continue to make our societies better which i think most people share do we go as far as we're being encouraged to and frankly as far as we've already gone or is it time to maybe step back and go well if the most prominent gender transition clinic in this country is being shut down because of thousands of allegations of malpractice is it possible that maybe in the desire to accommodate everybody's wish to be who they are, maybe we've actually gone slightly ideological about it and we've started hurting children who, by the way, are not capable of making these decisions, but were encouraged to by this particular clinic. Now that clinic is shut down, thousands of parents and uh, detransitioners are suing that clinic. Is it maybe the case that we've gone a little bit too far? on that particular issue and maybe there's other things you know when we have people demanding that we defund the police is that really the best way to protect people at the bottom of society to remove the one barrier between them and criminals is is that maybe we got if we are defacing the statue of one of the greatest people in the history of this country who saved britain and helped save the europe and the world from nazism we're defacing his statue with the word racist is it maybe the case that that is actually not who we want to be as a society that while we recognize that people who lived 100 years ago were not perfect 
they nonetheless maybe did some good and we shouldn't judge them always by the standards of today. Like that, that that's to me the conversation. Um, and uh, I, I think it's an important one. I, you know, I think uh, people who, who want to dismiss this discussion uh, don't understand its significance. Culture, you know, Andrew Breitbart, uh, who was very controversial journalist in America, but was nonetheless respected in many ways, he said that politics is downstream from culture. And if culture matters as much as that, then it seems to me quite important that we get that right. Yeah, absolutely. And especially the, the point about culture and this uh, the fact that our, our culture has become so febrile with these extremes on both sides going at it in this culture war, to use that term. What, one area where the ideas around cancel culture and a, a kind of self-censorship seem to be rife is within the comedy circuit. Now, you're, you know, you're a comedian. I'm, I'm sure you know all about that. But do you, do you think on, on the whole, comedians are starting to feel under threat from this supposedly progressive ideology that you've just mentioned there, which so many people and, and institutions seem to be adopting? It's an interesting question. Uh, first of all, I should say in the interests of transparency that I used to be a stand-up comedian. I'm, mm-hmm. I've been on a break from it since since the pandemic and right. uh, very gratefully so, frankly, Um <laughs> because I don't have to drive around the country doing the gigs, even though I used to enjoy it very much, but it's certainly not, uh, you know, uh, my life is great now as well when I'm not doing it. So uh, I don't know exactly what's happening on the comedy circuit other than what other people tell me mm-hmm. and what I see in the media and, and so on. Now, we've just had an Edinburgh festival, which happens every August. That's just finished. I know of a uh, a woman who was punched in the face, I think, or someone spat in her face or something like that because she did a show in which she talked about uh, the issue of transgenderism from a comedic perception or women's rights, I think, in the context of that. Uh, we had the comedian Jerry Sadowitz, whose show was pulled from uh, the most prestigious venue uh, provider in Edinburgh Festival. Um, and this is the sort of thing that happens every year and around the country. So... Uh, there are some comedians who are finding it difficult. Uh, there are also many, many, many comedians who are content and, in fact, on board with this ideology and would quite like to enforce it on the rest of the comedy industry. Uh, and this includes the people at the very top of the industry, like the people who who run the Edinburgh Festival Awards, the essential core of the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, Nika Burns in 2018 said that she looks forward to a new era uh, of uh, work comedy in which work comedians will be deciding what isn't isn't acceptable. This is the director of the Edinburgh Festival Awards, right? Uh, so uh, there are some comedians who are finding it more difficult. Uh, there are a lot of comedians and a lot of people in the comedy industry who are very, very happy with what's happening. They've embraced this because uh, they've decided that it's no longer important for comedy to push back against the mainstream narrative or the main thing that is a threat to what I used to consider the liberal worldview, which is that people should be free to say what they want to say. People should be free to express their opinions, think for themselves. Uh, They should be free to criticize religion. Uh, This is what comedians used to talk about, remember? Well, imagine what would happen now to a comedian who criticized certain religions, right? That—that's We live in a very different world now. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the comedians will all have, not all, but most of them have rationalized 
why this is the way that comedy should be now because they've decided that comedians are very powerful if they if they tell you know bill burr who we've just interviewed for trigonometry he made a a funny funny joke he was said the people say well you shouldn't say homophobic jokes and he was like okay why is that and they and the person said well it's because you can you know that increases homophobia and he went so are you homophobic and the person went no and he went so what joke would i have to tell to make you homophobic right comedians have decided that they have this incredible amount of power because they speak words and this is part of this ideology um that words are literally violence and and yeah. most comedians have embraced this and they're happy to go along with this idea i do want to pick up on something you said about the the edinburgh fringe and this idea about acceptability within, within mm. comedy and you, you know you mentioned it there with bill burr but comedians for millennia really have, have been pushing the boundaries of acceptability you know testing their audiences and their limits so do you think in in certain sectors of the comedy world we've reached a point where you know people have been moving the line so much moving those goalposts so much and and so many times as well that comedians aren't actually trying to cross it anymore for fear of cancellation or for for fear of other reprisals or being called out i definitely think people are more careful uh, mm. I, w- I wouldn't go so far as to say people don't cross the line. There are there are plenty of comedians, mm. uh, particularly the bigger ones, who, who don't have to fear the, the, really the, the impact of cancellation. They mm. actually benefit from controversy usually. Uh, you know, if Ricky Gervais outrages some trans activists, I don't think that's going to end his career. You mm. know what I mean? Yeah. So um, on the one hand, that that is definitely true. And there are people, thankfully, who are still pushing the boundaries. But yeah, on the comedy circuit, most people are yeah. very careful. Uh, some people are still pushing some of the boundaries some of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but most people are are being very careful because we live in, in that world. And, you know, I, I think you're right to, to suggest that the current time is is not good. But it also makes me think, you know, of my heroes, people like Bill Hicks and George Carlin and others before them, there were comedians getting arrested for things that they were Mm. trying to say on stage. I suppose the difference is that in those days, they had the sympathy of the public. Um, These days, uh, certainly the vocal section of the public wouldn't be on board with a comedian who told a naughty joke of some sort or a bad joke or a phobic joke or whatever. I don't think yeah. I don't think the public would be on board with that. Whereas 40, 30 years ago, it was more a case of this is a comedian who's speaking out on our behalf against government tyranny. Yeah. It's no longer like that. Now this is a comedian who's evil and who is refusing to go along with what all of us nice people believe. So that's a shift. But I think comedians have always been, you know, I'm sure in George Carlin and Bill Hicks's era, there was a lot of, hack comics just going around the country telling mother-in-law jokes as well mm-hmm. like i think that was probably still happening and just while we're on the the topic of comedy you know over the weekend there was a lot of discussion around having comedians on political tv programs following joe lycett's appearance on the first episode of bbc's sunday with laura coonsberg i know you've been a panelist on bbc question time on a number of occasions but just following this debate that's been happening do comedians have a place on serious news programs and debates yeah, uh, you're always ha- going to have the risk, particularly mm. with a comedian like Joe Lysett, uh, that, you know, he's not there to give you a serious message of, you know, whatever. He's there, I think, to sell tour tickets uh, and he's going to do whatever he needs to do to do that. Um, everybody's talking about it. 
So yeah. it's not like it's been a bad move for Joe. Um, and, you know, everyone's got their own approach. I, you know, I have a different view of these things. Um, and I've always tried to approach the interview from a point of like having something to say as well. Yeah. Uh, that's one way of doing it. And, you know, I, I've moved away from doing stand up, as I say. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, but you, you, you never gonna you're never going to find a real comedian mm-hmm. who's going to criticize another comedian for yeah. trying to be funny on TV, sure. on, mm-hmm. on a news program. Like, uh, you know, a lot of people would think that I would think that he's a wasting people's time. No, no. Like as a comedian, that is perfectly within your remit. And if you get invited mm-hmm. on the serious show and you want to take the piss, you're a comedian. That's what yeah. you're supposed to do. Okay. Well, I'd like to move on slightly and ask you about your podcast, Trigonometry. Mm. So for listeners who haven't heard the podcast yet, could you just give us a, a, an overview of what it is and the sorts of things that you cover on it? I can't believe there's listeners who haven't heard of Trigonometry. I know. That's, that's I know. incredible, mate. Never <laughs> would have imagined that. Uh, the Trigonometry is me and a fellow uh, stand-up comedian called Francis Foster, we started it in April 2018, and it is now probably the biggest cultural, independent cultural and political uh, discussion show in the UK. Um, we've had all sorts of incredible guests on the show, like we just talked about Bill Burr, mm-hmm. Jordan Peterson, uh, John Barnes, the former England footballer, mm-hmm. just, uh, you know, uh, Nigel Farage from the right and Lord Andrew Adonis from the pro-Brexit left and former Jeremy Corbyn spokesman all the way through to plenty of people from the right side of politics. Uh, We try to have honest conversations with people that we find interesting. Uh, We try not to uh, overly focus on the serious stuff, but we also try to balance the, you know, the seriousness with the lightness. So um, it's, it's definitely a serious show, but with a light touch. Uh, It's not just two comedians, you know, joking around the whole time. We try to have, interesting conversations about mm-hmm. politics, about culture, about comedy, about yeah. philosophy, about history, uh, evolutionary psychology and biology and, you know, men and women and all sorts of mm-hmm. things. Yeah. And, and one of the main features of the podcast, as you mentioned, is is the idea of having those long form interviews with you know, very influential and high profile figures. And that idea of having the long form interview is becoming more and more popular. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people want to engage with those types of interviews and discussions? Well, I think that if you think about it, really, until about 10, 15 years ago, Mm. people didn't really have the option Mm. to listen to a huge amount of choice of long form audio programs. And, you know, 40, 50 years ago, there would have been long form interviews that people would have watched. And then eventually the media decided that everyone has the attention span of a gnat. Uh, and that they've got to be given sound bites and clips because they were trying to maximize eyeballs on on whatever they were doing. And along comes the internet and goes, hold on a second. There's there's people who don't have the attention span of a gnat and actually would quite like to listen to people chatting for a few hours um, or an hour in our case. So I, I think that it's it's not so much that they're increasing in popularity, it's just more people are coming across the fact that they now exist. It's not like I think I don't think people ever hated listening to interesting people talk at length. They just didn't really have the opportunity to do that extensively. Uh, but if you look at, you know, interviews from uh, the 80s and 90s with really significant economists or uh, p- 
you know, cultural figures or journalists or musicians or comedians even, you can see that the theatres are full. I mean, before the, before the internet really came along, those debates between Christopher Hitchens and other people or Richard Dawkins or others, these are theatres full of people. Um, so I, I think the demand has always been there. It's just we haven't really had the technology to make it available to so many people so easily before. And speaking of long form interviews, uh, you and your co-host Francis Foster, you were on the, the Joe Rogan podcast mm. uh, recently. What was that experience like? Awesome. Yeah, absolutely awesome. It was really great. Mm -hmm. To maybe dispel a myth or two, is it really as as much of a marathon recording it as it is to watch it? Because sometimes there's like three, four hours or so yeah well ours was four and a half hours i i don't know how big joe's bladder is but it's a lot <laughs> bigger than mine because by the end of it i was like i don't i can't even listen to what anyone's saying anymore i just need the toilet uh that's how long it, that's how long they are so yeah it's just you sit down and it's the, it's the conversation and it's gone for as long as it's gone well j just before we finish I, i'd like to ask you briefly about our new prime minister liz truss as, as we're recording this for, for listeners it's tuesday evening she's currently appointing her new cabinet are you optimistic about a, a trust premiership um uh, i don't know that much about liz truss uh i said instinctively yesterday i said on, on my twitter that i don't know i don't like her i don't trust her and i don't think she's the right thing for this country mm -hmm. but like with every leader i will give her time before making my mm -hmm. mind up about her and if she proves herself to be a prime minister who's capable of getting a grip on what is a very difficult situation mm -hmm. uh then uh then i will i will be i will be absolutely delighted uh you know i'm not a a, a Tory or a, a Labour person at the point that we're at now we have such big problems Nathan that I'm only interested in having leaders who are actually going to do what this country needs to do uh, when it comes to the situation in Ukraine when it comes to the cost of living when it comes to the fact that we for the last 14 years have been printing money non-stop and seemingly mm -hmm. will continue to do that the fact that young people uh, can't get on the housing ladder. Uh, the fact that we have rampant crime in our major cities, uh, where you have gangs of machete wielding thugs chopping each other up mm -hmm. in the streets of London, that to me is a bigger concern than you know what Rosette the person in Number Ten is wearing, yeah. uh, or how frankly at this point whether they were, you know, first choice, second choice, seventh choice. This trust was was would have been about my seventh choice out of the mm -hmm. people that ran, but. If she proves herself to be even remotely competent, which would put her head and shoulders above the, her, the previous prime minister, uh, then then I'll be delighted because we've got very, very, very big problems. So I just wish her the best of luck, if anything. Mm -hmm. No, ab absolutely. Quite right to point out that we we do have some very serious issues. And you know, she, ha she has alluded to some of the issues you've mentioned there in her opening speech but you know as we say time will time will tell so and by the way i've been impressed with with the first two speeches the one she mm -hmm. gave uh to the party and outside the steps of number 10 mm -hmm. uh you know short to the point i like the messages about uh you know the british people are creative entrepreneurial people whose mm -hmm. whose talents should be unleashed i like the idea that we we shouldn't just endlessly borrow money to to spend it by giving it away we should actually invest it in things that we one of the things we should invest it in is rebuilding uh energy independence which i've been yeah. banging on about for bloody years 
yeah. uh, both in terms of this country and Germany, which after 2014, this was after Russia had already done what it done in Ukraine, mm -hmm. they started selling off their nuclear power plants, rendering yeah. themselves completely dependent on Russia, right? We can't afford in the current geopolitical environment to be doing things mm -hmm. like this. We have yeah. to have energy security. We have to have food security. We have to have security in every front, really. Mm -hmm. uh, so that to me is important. Um, but yeah, that, you know, the idea that we have to work our way out of this, mm -hmm. as opposed to just cry and complain about how bad everything is. I like that. And I, and I wish her the best. Mm -hmm. I am therefore almost certainly going to be wrong and she's going to be a massive disappointment. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for these next couple of months, I'm going to give her, you know, the benefit of the doubt. Okay, so a very quick final point then. You know, we, we've just going back to the book. We, we've discussed uh, the 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 decline of the West and the the decline of promoting Western values. So, what do you propose then? We should do to get us to re-engage with those Western values and really get out of this kind of malaise we find ourselves in today. I think we've got to realize that we've got big challenges in front of us. Challenges always. Uh, ignite some people into action. They ignite them into seriousness. Uh, mm. So that's what my that's what I always say to to people uh, who are young people is you know if you care about climate change, get in the lab, go and find the solution to climate change. Don't whine about it. Don't try to impoverish poor people who who never went to university like you. Right? Go and go and make something of your life. Create, build. Mm make things that are going to make the world better you know the unfortunate thing about your generation and mine is we've all been persuaded that you know the way to solve the problems of the world is to express how we feel well that isn't how you solve the problems of the world um, and uh, i hope more and more young people discover that and embrace that okay constantine kissing thank you very much for coming on the show thank you so much with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.